honest questions with honest answers. This is Unfiltered, brought to you by the Emergency Medical Minute. The Emergency Medical Minute is excited to announce that we are now offering AMA, PRA, Category 1 credits via online course modules. To access these and for more information, visit our website at www.emergencymedicalminute.com backslash CME-courses, or simply click on the link in our show notes and create an account. Welcome back to Unfiltered. This is Nick Sippis coming to you from the Emergency Medical Minute headquarters at Mile High Ambulance in Englewood, Colorado. We are so fortunate to have Dr. Nadia Tremonti as our guest this month on Unfiltered. We've been looking forward to having Dr. Tremonti on for some time. Uh, she is the star of a recent film, uh, Palliative, with our own Don Stater, an incredibly powerful film. We'll, we'll get into it, but I just wanted to introduce uh, Dr. Tremonti and have her give a, a quick uh, bio about where she's currently working and and uh, and her current her current gig. Uh, for those who don't know, who haven't yet had the privilege of seeing the film, so Dr. Tremonti, would you uh, mind uh, jumping on and introducing yourself? Absolutely. Um, I'm here calling in from Detroit, Michigan, where I was born and raised, and I'm currently practicing as the medical director of the pediatric palliative care team at Children's Hospital of Michigan. Wonderful. Thank you so much for making the time to be on with us. You know, um, our listener base is a is a diverse mix. We've got paramedics, we have medical students, we have residents, we have attendings, nurses, um, which we're really fortunate. Could you, for those who aren't familiar, could you explain and describe pediatric palliative care and what it looks like for you? Absolutely. I think when people hear the term palliative outside of the medical realm, the vast majority of people don't even know what the word itself means. And then um, most people think of palliative as being the same thing as hospice care, which is you know, often looked at as a services for people who are dying or approaching the end of life. Obviously, I'm a pediatrician, so that means I'm taking care of children who are very sick. I tend to like to look at palliative care more as a big umbrella, and underneath it, one little part of that umbrella is hospice care. I would say in my practice, hospice is only maybe about 5 to 10% of what I do, and the vast majority of what I do is take care of um, patients with all sorts of illnesses at many different stages in their illness. And I really like to tell people that palliative means to relieve suffering. Mm. And so my focus is both on the patients and their families and the different types of suffering that having a serious illness can cause and trying to find both medical and social, spiritual supports for families to work through those times. Thank you. That's a that's a great introduction. You know, I think when people hear that or when they see the trailer to the film, uh, you know, they, I, I know I felt that must be such a burden. You know, I think about how, you know, how incredibly difficult some of these situations are for families and their young children. Um, and, you know, I think how, how incredibly difficult uh, that must be. That, that was my first impression. I suspect that's the first impression of a lot of folks. Can you, t- t- how did you get into this? I mean, this is, a, it's like you said, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very specific niche and it's, it's such a need. Um, but how, how did you get ex- exposed to this to, to begin with? How did you find your calling? Um, what, what kind of led you down, down this path? Yes. Yeah, cheesy as it sounds, I do feel it was a calling and I think it was a lot of Um, serendipity that was involved. It certainly is not something you like wake up one day and be like, I want to become a pediatric palliative care doctor. You know, for me, 
I think early in life, you know, I was one of those kids that excelled in school and I was good in math and science. And so I think kind of early on becoming a doctor became, you know, my dream and, and what I, you know, was pursuing. Uh, I think some of the unique steps that I took when I was in undergraduate school for a multitude of reasons, I was able to kind of broaden my experience. And so instead of just studying um, like pre-medicine or biomedical sciences, I was able to get a second major in comparative religion. Mm. And um, I think that was pretty unique. And even the reason I chose that um, kind of has its own story in that I had this perspective that um, if I was going to be a doctor, I'd be taking care of people who are sick. And when people are sick, they often turn to God or prayer. And I um, was raised um, for the most part without religion. And I realized it was something I knew very little about, but that the rest of the world, it was something really important to them. And so I guess I had the the foresight that I thought it was important to learn about it. So that was kind of maybe one of the first unique parts. I then got into medical school and really my plan was to do obstetrics and gynecology. Mm. Um, And that was really where I put most of my pursuits. I actually had zero interest in pediatrics so much um, that, uh, you know, in your third year of medical school, when you can do all your rotations. I put it at the very end of my third year because I had no interest and (laughs) was instead using the time to explore other things. And then just even on top of that, at least in my medical school, when we did our pediatrics rotation, um, one of the options for our inpatient unit was you could do um, your inpatient pediatrics on the oncology floor. And I chose to do that basically because I wanted to avoid general pediatrics. (laughs) And so I thought that if I did oncology, then I could at least just learn about cancer and could kind of put the pediatric component in the, in the back of my mind. So during that rotation, I cared for three patients that really come to mind specifically mm. that had very serious cancer. And in fact, ultimately, all three of those patients ended up dying of their cancer, not while I was there. Um, but I think I recognized within me I guess, a unique openness to those situations. And I was really drawn to those patients. And so I had this very kind of last minute decision to change all of my applications. I had already applied for residency to OB. I switched everything around. I changed all my um, applications to pediatrics with this idea that I would go into pediatric oncology Mm. and had some great mentors that kind of led me on that path and um, canceled all my OB interviews and got into a pediatric residency right away. My first month I signed up for oncology and I was convinced this is what I wanted to be. And I would say pretty quickly in that first month, I started recognizing that I would be a terrible oncologist, but I remained drawn to these sicker patients. And then through that first year, every rotation I was on, I just was drawn to those patients that um, were the sickest. It seemed to me also those patients in discussions that everybody else around me seemed to be avoiding or not Mm. wanting to take care of, you know? And so in my second year, I started exploring the possibility of hospice and palliative care training. At that time, it was not 
actually uh, recognized subspecialty. There were not that many people in the country doing it. I was able to reach out to a few of the leaders and the early leaders in the field and ultimately decided to go ahead and do a fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was even before fellowships were like official. You didn't need to do one. I did my fellowship mainly in adult palliative care because there were so few pediatric experiences available in the country. And my timing, again, was really amazing. Um, while I was in my fellowship, the American Board of Subspecialty Medicine recognized hospice and palliative care as a new subspecialty. And so the year after my fellowship, I was able to sit for the boards the first time they were ever offered. Well, they probably had heard you were at a fellow, and they probably determined that was the right time to to make yeah, it to make it legit. Sure that's what it was. <laughs> um, and that that same year, another kind of thing that happened was the U.S. News and World Report, which ranks you know it does all sorts of rankings for all sorts of things, and one of the things it ranks is children's hospitals, and they added to their point scale if you had a palliative care. Um, program. Ah. And so um, that all of a sudden made me a little more marketable, I think. And <laughs> and so I was invited to start this program at, at Children's right out of training. And I was really given free reign to do whatever I wanted. And, and so that's where I've been for the last 14 years, wow. um, building that program. Wow. So that is great. Thank pretty, you. Yeah, that is a great, amazing. that it, it is all from, you know, it sounds like really the 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 birth of that is the the experience you had with those patients on the on the encord um and and how you i'm sure you still remember them and and they and i imagine yep. their families and um and how that has changed your life which then in term has ch- in time has changed countless other lives i mean that's that's so true you know and to all of our medical students listening i mean i do think there's truth in the fact of when you go on your rotations, you know, getting a sense of the patients and letting the patients help you determine your calling, you know, um, and it sounds like that's, that certainly is the case for you, Nadia. I even have, I've gone back and remembered the names of those particular patients and tried calling them. I, you know, nowadays with cell phones or at that time, a lot of people were transitioning. I was not able to reach those three families, but I can definitely, you know, think of, those specific patients along your way that that guided you without you knowing it. On my very first day of my third year of medical school, um, when I started clinical rotations, and again, I started at OBGYN because that was where my interest was. And my very first patient, like very, you know, early in the morning, I did pre-op for a woman who had come in for a colposcopy with the concern that she might have cervical cancer. And I remember, you know, vividly, like I was shaking. It was my first patient. I remember what it was like to be in pre-op and scrubs and actually doing things clinically. And she was shaking because she was scared of cancer and almost passed out just getting her IV. And, Mm. you know, I did the procedure. I was sitting in on the procedure. And then we were rounding late that afternoon and being one of, you know, eight trainees on this big group of rounds and observing the attending doctor you know, explain to this woman that her surgery went well and that we took her biopsy and we were sending it to the pathologist to look at the histology. And then we could find out if it was, you know, adenocarcinoma or carcinoma in C2. And I remember looking at the woman listening to this and her eyes were wide. And I was in a position where, you know, just two years ago, half of the words that the doctor said, I didn't know what they meant. Mm. 
and recognizing that she was totally clueless listening to him. And I was on call that night. And after we were done with rounds, I went back to that woman's room and I said, do you understand what he was telling you? And she was like, not at all. And so I sat down with her and I said, okay, a biopsy, we take a piece of tissue. The histologist is the doctor that looks at things under the microscope. And then they see different things in the cells and that will let us know if, you know, if this is cancer, what type of cancer, and that gives us a better idea of how to treat it using, you know, normal English words. And she was so relieved talking with me and I felt good. Like I had contributed, which a lot of times is young medical student, you just kind of walk around and follow people and don't feel like you're making big contributions. And, and to this day, I tell all the medical students, you know, how important they are to the team because they are still straddling that, that place where they probably should be able to identify more with patients than with doctors Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that they can offer that insight. And I think it, to this day, it helps me I think when you ask people, one of the things I'm really good at is explaining things to people in ways they can understand when it has to do with, you know, healthcare. And um, so it really stuck with me. So that was day one of my clinical experience. I think that's such a great story because it really shows, you know, and you connected with that patient, you know, and 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 her fear. I'm sure she had anxiety about, you know, the the potential diagnosis of cancer. You found that you had an ability to communicate, not just in layperson's terms and, and language and lexicon, but to identify with that patient and to empathize with that patient. And I think you clearly have, you know, you remember this story this that many years later. And I think that, you know, that's a great lesson for our trainees in any, you know, at any level is that um, when you find that you're able to make that connection with patients, take note of that because, you know, that a lot of patients, you know, are going to have very similar anxieties and very similar um, concerns. And if you're able to communicate with them and you, as you, you clearly have not lost the ability to communicate in that way, you know, that that's going to be your calling, you know, that that's going to be the patient population that you're called to serve. And I think that's a great story to, to really highlight that. The other thing I, I, I hear when uh, or I've been thinking about is, as, as you've been kind of describing your path is that in many ways, you know, you, you put a, a critically ill or a terminally ill patient in front of a group of 10 physicians, and you probably wind up getting 11 perspectives on, on how to take care of that patient. And I think, you know, what I'm hearing from you in a lot of ways is that your approach and your perspective to that patient, to that, you know, uh, let, let's say that the, the terminally ill child with cancer, you know, uh, one of the sickest patients, you know, and saddest patients really in the house, in the house of medicine. How would you describe, you know, how you, your approach to those patients? How would you, you know, um, how would you explain kind of Nadia Tremonti's approach to PEDS palliative care? What, you know, what are your principles? How do you, how do you, you know, see that? I think right from the start, when I do my consults and meet families, I do things a little different or a lot differently than most doctors I see. And right away, and even though you're taught this, I feel like I see it not done correctly, or I guess not, done, I shouldn't say correctly, but I, I'll just describe my way as maybe the better way. So when I meet families, one thing I do very early is just check agendas. So asking, you know, what is your understanding of how I can help? Or what have you been told about me? What do you want to get out of this meeting? Or what is your biggest priority today? 
And then, you know, letting them know what my agenda might be. And that might often be it just, you know, your team is a little more worried. So they had me involved um, to see how I could help. Or, you know, I saw that they said that your pain is more out of control or they're worried that, um, you know, things are getting more complicated. And so to help with decision-making or there might be a multitude of reasons. And I share that very openly and make a note because I would say so often there's a disparity in, in what, agendas are at the beginning of a meeting and and that helps me check in with families the next thing I do always is I want to hear I tell families I want to hear your story my like very rote quote is that nine times out of ten I could say I have not read your whole chart but even if I had you are more than your chart or your child is more than the chart and there are many many things that happen that are important that we don't write down. And I'm not here to quiz families on what day, what happened, what test, you know, what medications, you know, what chemotherapy you had over the course of time. You know, luckily when I'm involved, I'm less on the diagnostic side of things. You know, I'm, I don't have to focus in that place. And then I just listen to people tell their stories. And the only time I interrupt are you know, with kind of probing questions. What was that like for you? Who was with you when you found out? What do you remember most from the doctors? What was the thing that made the most sense? What didn't make sense? A lot of times I might say, you know, especially, you know, when people found out that there was the problem or the diagnosis, I might say, you know, when you got that diagnosis, what was, what was your feeling at the time? Did it sound like something that was, you know, something we can beat. Like, you know, when you found out you had cancer, did it sound like this is something curable and we're going to win or right away, were you scary that this was more serious um, and started thinking of all the things, the bad things that could happen. And I just listen to what they have to say. And I will say when people share their stories and all of our memories are not a hundred percent accurate. And sometimes I'll hear things that are even, I know aren't necessarily correct by the books, but even taking note of what people remember differently might give some insight into how people responded or reacted. You know, they might say something like, Oh, I hated that ER doctor who told me I had cancer. (laughs) And then I happen to know for a fact, it wasn't the ER doctor. It was the ICU doctor, but maybe that gives me some insight of where the mind was for that family. Right. Right. And then the next thing, um, you know, I, I, you said there were trainees on this, you know, when I do a review of systems, my review of systems is extremely thorough, and but I'm looking much more at the person's experience of their illness. Again, it's not to diagnose them. It's really, are there any parts that I could make better? Are there any sources of suffering that or areas maybe they don't understand? You know, have that? What have the doctors told you about your heart? And they say, you know, I I had this test, but nobody came back and explained what was wrong. So those are opportunities that I might have later on when I do counseling. Of, of explaining things better. A lot of that review of systems, and, and just right now I happen to be in a case, it, it's asking what families think of as suffering. And so mm. a lot of times I find that there are some discrepancies. Maybe the medical team or the nurses feel that somebody's suffering a lot, but the family's perception of suffering is much less. And, and so then when people are using the word suffering in an effort to counsel families, if you're not using it in the same way. So I'm really trying to elicit to, from families, do you see, do you perceive suffering? What are the things that, that you're seeing are not going well? And then like my social history is probably very unique that I do um, focus a little more on spiritual history 
than I think most doctors, you know, my spiritual history is not, you know, what religion do you have? Although I ask that question, I usually will ask you know, how important is that to you? And again, one of the kind of very frequent phrases I will use to people is that religion to me is a way that human beings have come up with answering really hard questions that we don't have answers to. And that may be questions like, why are we here? Where do we go when we die? Why do good things happen to bad people? And why do bad things happen to good people? And often in the pediatric realm, I'll say, you know, any anybody who works in a children's hospital, we wonder why does any child have to suffer? Why do innocent people have to suffer? And so I'll ask families, you know, given everything you know right now, are you, how are you making sense of what's going on? Mm. Are you more a person who's a little more scientific medical, like you're learning, you know, oh, this cell went bad. And because this cell went bad, this is what happened. Or are you more a person that's, you know, every, everything happens for a reason and God has a plan and something good will come out of this. Or maybe you're one of those people who's more like, I must have done something wrong and this is a punishment or, or this is my fault, this is happening. So I really focus a lot in that area. And then I also focus on what people's hopes and fears are given the situation. And I think only after I get all of this information, do I then start counseling families. And then when I counsel families, I use the language they've already shared in their story. So if they used the term suffering, I'll use suffering. If they use the term, you know, one of the things that happens a lot is, um, you know, you're, you, this is an ER podcast. I always think it's interesting when people have had a code, especially in the ER, mm-hmm. and, you know, then they've been revived. You know, it's interesting. Some families will use the term like they, their loved one died and then they came back or their loved one saw the light and then they came back or other families will specifically not use those terms like they did not die they were you know alive the whole time and interesting that to me is a really interesting thing so when I have those families who already think that their loved one died and came back that alters my counseling a little bit as Mm -hmm. as we look at things versus so I I really in all these questions um it gives me a lot more of family values and what's important to them and then I can counsel them based on those things and I will say very often I'm counseling less on data and statistics and, you know, any of my counseling on that role, it might just be offering some re-education to families if they didn't understand things well, or they didn't understand why this particular lab was very serious or what this means. But I don't usually tend to use those things to guide my counseling because honestly, most families don't use that either. Um, They tend to make decisions based on their gut their fear, their hope, their, their, their faith, and less about, you know, what the particular number was. Yeah. So you try to understand the framework that the patient and their family are working with and the, you know, how, how the, the, the structure scaffolding of how they, you know, interpret things. And then as needed, you, you know, you can include that objective, that scientific data, that kind of cold, cold data as needed, but really it's, that's tangential or, or at least, you know, uh, peripheral to, to the true questions, you know, the, 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 the most important questions that you talked about, you know, why, you know, how, yeah, how exactly. do you I, like, I use the term, like we customize care to the families, you know, you have like, yeah. you have the families that are highly 
intelligent and you're got in front of you two, you know, PhDs in biomedical sciences, you don't need to explain to them the, the lab work necessarily. And then you might have another family who, you know, all they've talked about through the whole consult is, you know, it's part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan. So it's sitting there and trying to discuss with them the x-ray results. Like that's not, that's not the important part for them. So mm-hmm. I think we waste a lot of time. So I think sometimes people think my consults are like take too much time or we don't have enough time to learn this about families. But I think when you look at the, the broader picture, it creates more efficiency because you don't waste as much time in the counseling section with families because I sit in in a lot of family meetings where it's, you know, one hour of a doctor talking at a family, giving Mm -hmm. probably of that hour 50 minutes of information that that family either doesn't need or want or won't change their mind and then not addressing the very thing that needs to be done. And so you've wasted time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you've even like, caused more conflict in families that you know that because you're kind of beating a beating beating a dead horse in one perspective and not finding out what what that family is really needing at that moment that is so true I, i mean i would say and i have such a minuscule amount of training and you know ability to do this compared to to you and in your experience you know but you know from from an emergency perspective, it does, you mentioned post codes or post cardiac arrest where the patient has you know, returned a spontaneous circulation. And I think, you know, that, that conversation with families is really hard. And I think probably part of the reason it's so hard is that despite, you know, I, I typically lead those conversations with a quite an open question of some sort, like, tell me what you understand or tell me, you know, what, what you you understand has happened here um, and to try and, you know, to try and get the, the patient's family's perspective on, did they die? Um, did, w- do they understand that their heart is now beating, but they're, we're not sure if their brain is working, you know, and, and we're kind of where they're coming from. But I, I don't do a good job of that. Nadia. I mean, I don't think any of us really do because it's hard to, to learn that framework that to, it's hard to learn that kind of, how patients families contextualize things and we all want to communicate to them in the most compassionate and effective and efficient way possible but i just I, you know i wonder that we we just don't have the tools or experience to to do so you know i think we we both of us interact with folks from all walks of life but i think in that moment when you know the family is coming to see their loved one who has a they have a breathing tube and there's all this beeping and maybe they have a central line and they have all these tubes and wires and they don't even look human, frankly, you know, how, how do we meet the family where they are and communicate to them in the most effective way possible? And, and I, I, I fully admit that I struggle with that. I think your, the framework you've given is certain, certainly helpful, but I think the next step of learn hearing what they say, you know, how they understand it, hearing what their fears are, um, hearing what their anxieties are, um, the next step of that is being able to communicate well, you know, to follow that up and to, to tailor the way I communicate to the way that they listen, you know, and I think that's a really hard skill set to learn. Um, and, and I certainly one that I, I would continue. Yeah. About. And like, it's as I'm hearing you talk and like one of the things, you know, like as your career goes longer and longer, there are certain things that like thoughts that go through your head that seem to come up more and more. And one of the big ones that I think of a lot is, is, you know, even the language, you know, I always like, you know, thousands of years ago, cavemen did not struggle with the terms dead or dying. Like they're like, 
when things were dying, it was very clear. And then they died and they were dead and there wasn't a lot of debate. And it's funny in 2020, these terms have actually become very confusing. And so, you know, doctors come up with this term coding, you know, somebody coded. Well, that's, that's code language. Like they were dying, but because they didn't die, if we got them back, then they weren't dying because they're not dead. And in order, like it's, it's gets very confusing. You start going around and around because Mm -hmm. dead is irreversible. And so even with families, I think it's like, it's very confusing for people. And there's like the philosophical, you know, there's, you know, you, you get the, the philosopher who's like, oh, all of us start dying the day we're born or other people, you know, like, which is true. <laughs> uh, but then there is then like when you're actually declining, like, you know, when you, you know, you're over the hill and, and, and now you're, you got less days in front of you than, than behind you, but those are a little bit harder to predict. And then there's kind of really, people who are living with really serious illness and whether or not we've, you know, said it out loud or not, that they're probably dying of their illness, whether that's over days or weeks or months or years or even decades. And we've gotten, you know, in this path that like defining dying is hard, even, (laughs) even to the almost last minute and even dead, we struggle as a society right now in defining. And so, Medically, like I said, we came up with this term code and I, there's goods and bads about that. You know, you can't over the speakerphone on every hospital, like every, like be like, oh, patient is dying in room so-and-so. So that's why we use. But like actually dying, as you know, word, like a real, this is, this is a, like a prominent pre- preeminent, uh, yeah. Proximal death. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then, you know, and then if we get them back, then they weren't dying arguably. And so, you know, it, it is, it's just, it's, I don't have an answer for it, but it is to me almost comical, though serious and sad that, that we struggle with this. And I think families who are non-medical str- like struggle with it very much more. And then medically we, we fill in the void and we've created so much confusion and grayness and blurry lines about what that means. But, but then I think all of us inherently have a very concrete almost childlike understanding like like death is irreversible and sad and it's not something you can like come back and forth and back and forth from and yet medically we've we've made like people do come back and forth and back and forth from being very close to dying or they still die of their disease but but we've we've just altered it i don't know so i think it it these are things we don't reflect on very much. That's right. I just think, you know, it is such a, an important thing. I, I, you know, just speaking with you thus far, I can can tell it's, you know, something that you've mindfully kind of cultivated and developed over the course of 14 years, really longer than that, going back through your training. And I think that's something that I, I certainly will take from this is that, you know, just being very mindful in those conversations about prioritizing and understanding of where the family's coming from and then just doing my absolute best that I can to communicate to them in a way that empathizes with that and connects with them. You know, it may not always work, but it's you know, to, to do the best to do the best that we can. Um, what are some of the most kind of frequent anxieties and fears that families communicate to you, you know, particularly with in respect to their children? Um, I think. The, I guess I could say the number one, when I ask that question, what are you most afraid of? The number one fear is losing my child. 
it's it is that moment or that event um and often that's why i think we like shut the door um and don't like to explore with families very much more and 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 on the other hand which i always think like hope and fear are you know kind of two sides of a coin that everybody's hope is that their child will be cured when they're in mm-hmm. these these situations but i think people don't like to get into that more I always try and expand that statement. Like I'm afraid of them dying, you know, especially in somebody who it looks like it might be very much a reality. I, I um, will say, you know, to me, there's kind of three parts of dying that people don't like or are afraid of. One is the process of dying. Like people are afraid, will it hurt? Will I be able to be with my family? Am I going to be alone? Those, those things, what are those those like that part of it another part is the fear of death itself you know and what happens to you at you after dying so that is you know those fears of things like heaven and hell and you know where's my body going to be how does it affect me you know what is it going to be like to not be able to interact with the world anymore and then the other part is the fear of what life will be like for everybody else going like going Mm -hmm. on like for all of the living like am i going to be okay am i going to am i going to fall apart myself if my daughter dies am i going to be able to take care of my other kids am i going to be able to remember my loved one who died and so sometimes when i hear people like so that's the big fear and if i can break it down into more manageable nuggets then you can maybe find areas that you can improve on. You know, so again, if somebody's big fear is that their loved one will be in pain, you know, that's a, I can almost always guarantee that we can really control that. And, and so I can explore that. If somebody's worried about how they're going to be afterwards, that might be somebody like that you, you talk a little bit about normal grief and how to confront normal grief. And I can share, you know, that most, most people end up being okay, but it is hard. So I would say that's like the big fear. And again, I think what is weird is um, doctors, because we're around people who are sick all the time. I don't think we recognize, especially doctors who work in the hospital, how afraid people are of their loved ones dying. Mm -hmm. And we don't talk about it. And so even when people come in with relatively minor things, and, and again, like, my story about this woman getting her colposcopy and certainly there was potentially a life-threatening thing but um but that day she wasn't in any risk of dying that day but her fear was am i going to die of cancer mm-hmm. and then like if you can cut it down into bigger little nuggets but i don't think we get in the muck with people about it um and and we're not clear about you know what does that mean to them I think for parents, their big fear is like, did they do the right thing? Were they a good parent? You know, did they make the right decision? I think much like in the older population, once they're intubated or if they're in a position that they can't share their wishes anymore, I think a common fear is like, am I doing what they would want for themselves? And, you know, in the adult population, that's why we're always trying to tell people to talk about you know, what their wishes would be ahead of time, talk with families, you know, talk with your family about, you know, if you were in this case or another, what would you want? So so that helps your family 
in pediatrics, that's not an option. You can't ask a one-year-old what they would want if they're, you know, on a ventilator for the next two months. And so, and I think a lot of times families really struggle with that. Like what they wish that, you know, that their loved one could tell them what they wanted. Although I, I also think that part of that is a whole different part of medicine that I think one big fear or anxiety that families have is making decisions. And a lot of families don't want to make these decisions. They wish it was God who made the decision or the doctor just tells them what to do. Mm -hmm. And increasingly doctors ask families to make these hard decisions. Mm. And I guess because of my perspective, I'm always frustrated. You know, I'll be honest. Like sometimes I'm mad at the ER doctor because often they didn't ask the family, do you want us to intubate your kid? There maybe there wasn't time. They didn't ask them, do you want me to code them for 30 minutes or 45 minutes? And yet when they're up in the ICU, we're asking families, do you want to discontinue life support? Right. Now we've learned that, yeah, this was not a good idea. And so when you think about that, that's maybe a much harder decision to stop treatments. And so I think very often in healthcare, we don't ask to start some of these things, mm -hmm. but we then expect families to ask to stop them. Right, right. And I, that's, that's a cruelty, I would say. I, I, sometimes it's totally unavoidable, but it, it, it's really, I think we have to be aware medically. No, you're right. And, and you have to, you know, you think genuinely about prognosis, you know, and, and op you're obviously operating in a, in a realm of limited information at times or limited availability of family, but, it, but, but you're right, you know, because it, it, it shifts the burden to families, you know, uh, and, and, and as you said, fundamentally the feeling of taking them off life support of removing something that whether or not it actually is, it feels like it's life sustaining, you know, that is inf exponentially, maybe infinitely, you know, more difficult than saying, no, don't, don't do anything to them in the first place. I, I, I couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more. I just had the, a totally new idea <laughs> that just came to me. So I'm going to share it. You can decide. Share it. You know, I wonder, like trying to put myself as I'm getting interviewed by an ER doctor, or, you know, <laughs> and this is mostly, you know, ER medicine or maybe, you know, I wonder sometimes if there would be value or what it would be like if, you know, you have one of those prolonged codes in an ER, you know, of, 30 minute downtime and then the person goes up to the ICU and I wonder and a week later we realize that that this person is neurologically devastated and we're here trying to talk to families about discontinuing life support mm. I wonder what it would mean for an ER doctor the ER doctor that ran that code to come up to the room and you know assess that patient a week later and meet with a family and say you know if I had known. When I was doing compressions, my hope was that a week from now, you know, we would have gotten something back. And now that I look at them, I'm really sorry. But as I, what I'm seeing today, this was not my intention. Mm. And if I could do it all again, if I knew this is where we would be, I would have stopped earlier. I would have let him die then. And my recommendation is we should stop because, because this was not the plan. And if you could offer that, like that idea that the very person that started this can look back and say, you know what, had I known then what I know now, I wouldn't have done this. 
it just occurred to me like that person that was in the moment. And if you could take that burden away from families, I think sometimes you guys are probably like in the ICU, we're always like, we're not always, sometimes we're like, we love the ER doctors. They did such a good job, but sometimes we're like, darn them. They put that tube in and now how, how can we get yep. out of this situation? It just occurred to me. Yeah. You know, I think for families, it would actually mean something. Well, I know, and I know a lot of us, I mean, I follow these patients either directly in, in person, you know, it's down the hall from the ER mm-hmm. at Swedish and, and, or at least via their charts. And I think that yep. we, we want that type of, of closure for the families and for the care team, you know, and, and we want that type of, you know, we, we don't have the gift of foresight of knowing exactly what their neurologic outcome is going to be. We can certainly, we have a sense, you know, we all kind of have a sense, but, um, I mean, I actually, I kind of love that idea, Nadia. I mean, I, I know I, I personally feel, you know, I, I feel a connection to those families in that moment, you know, and I worry, I, sh- I, I have a, a deep worry, um, you know, about did I do the right thing? You know, is this, is this truly giving this family, you know, an end that they would have wanted? And more importantly, the patient, is this the type of end that the patient would have wanted? Which... It's hard to know, um, but 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 certainly I try, try my best, and and I I was fortunate that I had a a mentor in medical school who who said uh, he's a palliative care doc um, who said you know if if time were short and it does appear that time is short where what would your loved one want and where would they want to be and who would they want to be with and how would they want to spend whatever time they had left and I think I try and use that question I don't use it enough but I think you know um, I try and use that question in the moment but if and when it doesn't turn out and, and time is, is truly genuinely short, you know, I think giving the perspective of, you know, it's different, it's different now a week later in the ICU. And if, and, and, and my care for you didn't end when we intubated you in the ER, my care for you and your family didn't end when we sent you to the great care that you've received in the ICU. My, I've continued to worry and care about you and wonder, you know, what your prognosis was going to be. And now it makes it, it has unfortunately made itself very clear and going, if I could go back, I wouldn't ask you to, I would never have wanted to put you in this position to have to take out a tube, you know? And I think, I think a lot of ER docs would probably feel that way. Yeah. I just like, I'm sure everybody, like you feel that way. I just wonder, like, just from like, yeah, families, like, like that exact statement, like, I, I wish I hadn't put you in this position because I think that that position now of having to make these decisions, because all of a sudden it shifted from the person dying of whatever their their thing is that brought them in, whether it's a car accident or a trauma or their disease process over years. But now all of a sudden, I think these families feel like they're being asked to make the choice of, of do they live or die and, and bringing it back to like, no, no, that choice actually was a week ago and it wasn't your choice. They got in, like, you can't, like, you couldn't have chosen for them not to get in that accident or to have their heart attack. And, and we, we tried to see if we could get out of this situation and we can't. So mm-hmm. this new question we're asking you, it isn't life. It isn't the life or death question anymore. Like we don't want to put that burden on you. It was, yeah. we, we thought there we could get out of this and we're, we can't. Yep. And we're just here to like, let you know that. I don't know. Yeah. It, I think it's, a, I mean, honestly, it's, it just occurred to me. It's a great um, idea. It's making me think of another situation. And again, about this, like, when does death occur? And I don't know if you've ever had this situation, you know, I had a family, you know, they had a daughter who was ventilator dependent, very interactive, and then had a, an arrest at home. 
and the family started CPR and it, and we're not getting anywhere. And then the, the ambulance came and they did, um, they, def- they did shocks and the, the child had return of circulation and it ultimately ended up ventilator dependent, but had lost all of her cognitive skills. And I had a four hour meeting with this family and they were debating so strongly and, and they were really struggling with the idea of, and some of the things they were thinking was, was she, did she die? Mm -hmm. And was that God's plan? And that had they sinned in interfering with God's plan and trying to bring her back, they had this question of, was it the doctors who brought her back or was it like the shock, like the EMS providers? Is that what brought her back? Or was it God who sent the EMS to arrive at that time and give the like shock and that, that, that she was alive because God wanted her to be and to go through this experience or, and so like they were, they were, they had all these feelings of guilt. Like, have I, have I sinned against God? Have I sinned against her? Have I, have we now, like, are we being tortured because we went against this? And they were asking me these questions, like, what do I think? Like, you know, when she died and it was really a struggle because obviously I mean, a, I might not share their exact religious beliefs, but it, it's all very, you know, existential and meta, mm-hmm. you know, like what came first, you know, and, and they were struggling so hard and they were a family that was debating, should we now discontinue the ventilator? Right. And, and I just remember it being so much pressure on them. And then thinking about on the doctor end of it, if doctors are like, yo, and I'm sure there's some doctors that are like, you know, think it was their work and like that they did you know that they did it or god gave them the tools or there was this shock of god that that came in anyway these are complex things i can't believe that meeting only took four hours nadia what only four i mean addressing some of the most existential questions (laughs) we didn't figure it out i should say but i just remember it was a like i remember that it was a very long discussion in their home but no and we didn't figure it out and that family ultimately um, felt very frozen. And despite actually, I would say an overall thought that the child was suffering and that the best thing was to stop the ventilator. And she ultimately did die. Um, more of a, I, I would say like a, another kind of complication that she couldn't recover from. Mm. But despite having a feeling in a sense overall that, that the right thing was to discontinue the ventilator, they, they, they felt they couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that and I, I don't know if they ever reconciled, you know, what was God's plan or not. Yeah. This issue of rec- I was actually just I really wanted to get into that. This the, the the concept of reconciliation, you know, and I have, you know, from ICU rotations and, and, and spending time, you know, um, checking on patients in the ICU, talking about it with the intensivists and their care teams and that patients and their families, I, I do feel like you know, you mentioned, I mean, these are some of the most existential, difficult questions to possibly ask. And families strike me sometimes as, as stuck, you know, they're, they're stuck asking these questions of themselves. They're stuck, particularly on that question of what happens when we die. I mean, I mean that they're mm-hmm. asking you that question. They're looking for insight from you. How, how do you manage that? I mean, I, I mean, you keep, I'm sure you keep trying to drill down on what, what they hold dear and what their loved one held dear and, and try and use that. But I mean, how do you navigate that? I do find that 
patients and fam- patients' families, I feel like get stuck in these mo- in in completely understandable, but this awful indecision and guilt that comes with that. And how do you reconcile that? I mean, some of these questions are questions society has never found the answer to, but you're, we're trying to find an answer to them, you know, in, with a, with a dying loved one, you know, in the room next door. How do, how do you, how do you reconcile that? How do you find, help them find reconciliation? So a couple of things. And then it is interesting because we live in such a multicultural society and everybody's coming at things with their own religious. A lot of this is in the religious realm of things. I will say, and then you add to it, I have to me, although maybe somewhat increasing, I have a fairly unique personal religious background that I think is in many ways the minority of the world. And then I find myself often often counseling people about this. You know, some of my basic themes when I try and share some of that reconciliation, one statement I say all the time is, you know, we are what the one thing we know is we are mortal beings that no matter how far science goes, there will continue to be people who die and there will be babies and grandmas and good people and bad people. And that is the nature of our mortality. And so looking at, and I, I, that's how I feel. It's what helps me through my world. And it's how I explain to families, you know, that it is an unavoidable part of, of life. I look another way that I often will use the Shakespearean quote that I think it is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And so that trying to find that meaning in life when somebody dies, like the fact that it's sad, the fact that it's hard is actually a testament to what makes life beautiful and it makes their, you know, this specific person's life important. And so, you know, I often have this statement that I, I'm never trying to make this not sad. My, my goal is to make it not scary. And in fact, in some ways, I, I want it to be sad. Mm. When somebody dies, it should be sad because you were happy. And that's in my film. It's it, mm-hmm. like, so I, I really cling to that idea. You know, part of that reconciliation, I, I will often tell families that to me, what I think is um, a part of being a human being is we are intelligent beings that can think of different time courses. And in simple, you know, we can think, oh, had I done something differently, the outcome would have been different. And I always tell people like there's, that's a huge blessing or gift that we were given. And that's what's made human beings so successful as a species, you know, that we can plan for the winter and we can, you know, understand cause and effect better. But there is a burden that that you can drive yourself crazy with the woulda, shoulda, couldas. And I try and encourage families that the, the reality is there is only one timeline. We cannot go back and change things. And so when we're presented with decisions, we just have to hope in that moment that that we have the best information possible, that w- that we're not basing things on lies or misinformation, and that these decisions are made with love. And then you have to just accept what happened, happened, um, and and try and recognize this good side and bad side of of being intelligent. And so these are kind of ways, tools that I use with families confronting this that's a little bit avoidant of a, you know, specific religious Mm -hmm. realms. It's a little bit more universal. 
it leads me to another thought. I think when I ask families, you know, why they think this is happening, I will say almost universally across many different backgrounds, cultures, races, religions, the number one thing I hear is people say, I think everything happens for a reason. Hmm. And it's interesting to me because it actually grates my soul. I hate that answer, Mm. but I am totally aware that it seems like I might be the only person in the world that doesn't like that answer. And the reason for me is that to me, it's such a passive and powerless approach. And I would like to rephrase that for the world that instead of like everything happens for a reason, I feel like we can make reason from everything. And like my stupid way of explaining that philosophy to people is, you know, if you're walking down the street and you step in a puddle and then you learn that you should watch where you're walking. So some people might say, oh, God put that puddle there to teach me to learn. So like everything happens from a reason. I like something good came out of this bad thing. But to me, it's like too, it it kind of makes I don't know. It makes me feel like, like we're kind of an idiot. Like we just need some, like the world to Mm. keep doing things without our control. Whereas I like to believe, you know, that if, if you want to use God or nature, like God gave us a mind or a brain or nature gave us a brain so that when we step in puddles, we can learn to take positive from that and start look where we're going. And so to me, I don't like that term. Everything happens for a reason. I prefer like we can make reason from everything and even we can learn and find good from even bad situations. And I guess that's where I find strength in my own field. And like going back to like very early in the conversation, you say, you know, people must think your field's so depressing. But to me, I feel like there's a freedom. Like I'm, I'm involved when situations are so bad Mm -hmm. and all I have to do is make them a little better. Like, and, and you, you almost always can like there is joy and and life even in these sorrowful moments so that's i guess that's what gives me my power and strength and hope that is that is great that is very well said you know and i think it it like you said it's empowering to families you know to feel like things aren't just happening to them being done to them you know they're you're encouraging them to apply their own context apply their own reason apply their own you know interpretation to the events that have happened and to try and, you know, make, make sense of it as best they can in that way. And I think that that strikes me as a gift that you're giving families to be able to do that, um, to, to put that power back in their hands, to, to try and make sense of it in the best way that they can, instead of feeling passively, you know, thrust down upon, um, Thank you for that. Yeah, I should put my disclaimer out there. Um, I want to patent it. So one day when I have time to write my book, the title of my book is going to be, you can make reason from everything. <laughs> so uh, that's my goal. It's, it's, it's all, it's all up there in the, my bright brain. It there it is. Yeah. To the page. Not sure if the, you know, the, the ER doc helping with the code discussion or the book will happen first. We'll see. We'll see. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, Nadia, I just want to end with with one question. What is the what is the saddest part about what you do? You know, you just mentioned how um, you feel empowered to, to 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 be able to make these terrible situations even just a little bit better. And I know that you do, and it's not just a little bit. Um, but there still is a 
you know, profound amount of sadness in these situations. And what, what is the saddest part of what you do or or what is the, the thing that you wish you could change the most? Maybe that's two sides of the same coin. You know, it's, it's a really interesting and complex question because again, part of me, I think the things that other people think are sad, again, to me are examples of a joy or happiness or connection that existed. And so I guess what I see as sad is actually the isolation that families feel and that are in these situations that culturally we don't talk about them more openly, that families feel they're alone. I really think for a lot of families, particularly with sick children and really chronically ill children, and and I work with a really large population of neurologically impaired children, you know, maybe that are nonverbal, non-ambulatory, that I think the saddest thing is the lack of support those families get and reminders that they're good people Mm. and that there's a, you know, that, that we don't help each other in just the simple things. You know, I also work in a, in Detroit, in a, in an area with a lot of people that have a lot of poverty, a lot of lack of education a lot of lack of resources and to, to be doing these things alone or, or struggling with some of the, the basic human things, you know, not being able to get to the doctor's appointment on time, not being able to afford, you know, the medicine or the copay, um, not having friends to hang out with because you're, you're stuck at home, you know, with your kid. Um, I guess that's the more sad part. Um, and, and maybe that's the real paradox, like the fact that children die to me, it's sad, but it's, it's sad because it's, it's beautiful. And I, I think it's beautiful that human beings will, that we're special. We're not like other species when our, like when our younger sick, we don't like kick them out of the nest and like, you know, like give them to the wolves. You know, we, we love them and hold them and care for them more and really, you know, get in the muck. Um, I, my other, like, I don't get to see it very often because I think in, in pediatrics in general, um, you know, we have parent like most kids have love, they have loving parents, even though their parents may have struggles. Um, I think I struggled a lot more in the, you know, adult world and the elderly population and people dying alone. And there Mm. isn't somebody there to be crying with them or over them. I think those are that's the more sad situations to me. So in, in general, I I don't know. I revel in my tears and sadness. I just, to me, there's always the other side that there's joy and connection and humanity. Mm. Thank you. I mean, thank you for fostering that connection with your patients and their families. Thank you for helping them feel like they're not alone and for your advocacy for them. Um, You know, I, strongly encourage folks to to watch the film it's powerful and it's moving and a lot of the topics we've discussed we dive into them deeply in the film and i think your perspective is one that um, is so important and it's 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 a it's frankly an uncomfortable reality that a lot of folks don't want to need to or have to engage with until it strikes close to home um but uh but 
we're so fortunate to have you as a, as a guest today and, and, and fortunate to watch the film, uh, to learn from you and your experience. Um, thank you for making the time for us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing uh, some time to philosophize. <laughs> That's right. I think it's hard to not get into philosophy with a lot of these topics. And, um, you know, but the way in which you, you know, walk, you're, you're not telling families how to feel. You're not telling families what to do. You're just, you're, you're walking with them. And, and, um, and, and I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing for them to have that type of support and, um, and, and somebody who's ex as experienced as you are. So I, you know, I thank you for sharing with, 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 with me and with our, with our listeners uh, who hear this. Um, we'll, um, uh, we'll, we'll put a link to, to your work, um, in the show notes and, and just really can't thank you enough, Nadia. Thanks so much. Yeah. Is there anything that else that you'd like to talk about? Um, no, the only thing I would say is, as you link to the work, you know, the, the film Palliative, which I am deeply indebted to Don and, and everybody there in Colorado, the original film was more broad about both the, the life and joys um, that people have and about, um, you know, dying specifically. Then the New York Times, when they picked up the movie and, and did a shortened version that's called Dying in Your Mother's Arms, that movie was very specifically focused mm -hmm. on the, the dying, the end of life care. Um, and I just always just want people to know that's just one part. And, and I did like the, the longer movie, which we hope soon will be more available and accessible to people because I think it has a, it demonstrates a little bit more that there's a lot of life in, mm -hmm. in this as well. And palliative care isn't just about dying, but I think it's, it's about embracing life without a fear of dying. And so anyway, that would be my only thing to add. No, that's great. I think a theme that's come up in several different ways since we've been talking uh, two sides of the same coin, whether it's hope and fear. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, I think that's a great sentiment to, an, to end on is that, you know, as much as we will continue to work to make the death of a loved one as peaceful, you know, beautiful as possible. I think it reminds us of, of how, um, how beautiful life is and that connection that you've talked about. And I think that those are two sides of the same coin. The Emergency Medical Minute would like to thank our sponsor, Swedish Medical Center, for helping fund our nonprofit organization and make this podcast possible. Donations are essential to our organization to cover operational costs and fund the creation of our online courses offering AMA, PRA, Category 1 credits. So if you enjoy our show, and if you're able to make a one-time or recurring donation towards our organization, any amount is helpful. Please click the link in our show notes to make a donation. Thank you for listening. We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.